So to just train in the pool exclusively and then think that you're going to jump into the ocean or a lake, all the unpredictable weather conditions that might happen and just the chaos we you and I were talking about mass starts and things like that. There's a lot of variables in the open water that can be chaotic and scary. And welcome to another episode of the Endurance Cartel podcast. I am your performance and lifestyle coach, Javier Pineda. Each week, we bring you valuable information from personal experience to medically proven research on how you can reach peak physical performance. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get down to business. Today, we have exercise physiologist Dan Daly, who is a former collegiate swimmer and now a full-time coach. He has helped hundreds of endurance athletes reach peak performance. Hope you enjoy today's show. Dan Daly, what's going on, man? Thank you for being hey, on the Endurance Cartel podcast. I appreciate you spending the time with me and giving some of my listeners good insight on swimming. Yeah, thanks for having me, by the way. I appreciate you reaching out. I hope the sirens here in New York City aren't too loud. They're about to blow off. Yeah, yeah, it's authentic. No, I'm happy to be on this, but thank you. Yeah, I've been really leaning in my social media marketing. I'm really just trying to connect the dots for endurance athletes and strength and the strength and conditioning piece and helping them be more efficient with their strength, their volume, and their technique, and show them how strength training can be a big part of that and helping reduce injury, improve performance, and just be more efficient. So I post a lot of strength conditioning, dry land content, we call it in the swim world, but I work with a lot of swimmers, open water swimmers, masters, triathletes, and some endurance athletes in general, a lot of marathoners. But uh, my background was in swimming. I studied exercise science and got into strength and conditioning and then got into the personal training, strength and conditioning world. And since then, I've just been working with endurance athletes with a focus on swimmers. It's incredible. And that's a great niche. And let me ask you, how for people that are afraid of the water or they're like yourself or both parents, what's the ideal age to start swimming? There's this big push to waterproof young kids. And like sometimes before they can walk. I worked with uh, a lot of infants just out of college and kind of this whole waterproofing concept and swimming lessons for kids and making sure if young kids fall in the water, they can roll onto their back and float to safety until someone can help them. So I think as soon as parents feel comfortable with that, my wife and I were both swimmers and our son didn't really learn how to swim until he was about three, but we got him in the water a lot and made it safe. Hope. So I, I think it all depends. I started swimming competitively when I was like six, not too seriously, but joined like the local summer swim team. And I, I do think there's a, there's an adaptation and there's a level of fitness and technique that, that could take years to develop. And if you start at a young age, it's a really powerful time to make some of those but I've created a niche working with adults, a lot of adult onset swimmers who are getting into triathlon and they might be strong or decent on the run and bike, but they don't have the swim piece. They're, the swim is underprepared. They're scared about it. They, they might have a previous fear or something they're trying to overcome. And I work with a lot of adults at teaching them how efficient swimming can be and how it could be as easy as going for a walk in the park. But it could also be very demanding depending on like how fast and how far you swim. And what's the number one common fear in people like late bloomers that are getting in the water or have stayed away from the water since the age of six, for instance? A lot of people I know, they just started getting in the water, started swimming lessons. Like you said, once that technique is lost, it's a world to get it back. That's the number one fear that you see on these people. I don't know if I can narrow that down to the number one fear, but I, I do think a lot of people might be comfortable in a pool, whether that would just wading and splashing around, swimming a few laps. And the open water is like a completely different animal. Even someone like myself who has a lot of swimming experience, I'm very comfortable in the water, but open water swimming is very unique. 
So to just train in the pool exclusively and then think that you're going to jump into the ocean or a lake and all the unpredictable weather conditions that might happen and just the chaos we, you and I were talking about mass yeah. starts and things like that. There's a lot of variables in the open water that can be chaotic and scary. And if you don't prepare for those things and get some experience doing it, it can be overwhelming. So open water might be number one. And there's some other elements like breathing and maybe just some of the general fears of someone had a bad experience in the water. Those things can be amplified in a race situation when there's a lot of energy, a lot of chaos, and it helps to have a little bit of experience and kind of ease into it. Yeah. We were also talking about the amount of people having panic attacks or even deaths. I remember back in my day, I didn't hear or read about that because maybe people were more prepared for uh, mass starts, but I think Ironman has switched around the mass start. This is now it's just a small groups or time trial starts because of that. I think that is my assumption. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, I don't know how much evidence supports that, but anecdotally, we definitely see an increase in heart attacks, panic attacks, and things of that nature with the swim. I think for a variety of reasons, people are underprepared. Like I said, the water is cooler. People can panic and those things can escalate and cascade into like elevated heart rates, breathing rates, not relying on your stroke, maybe swallowing some water. So it's helpful to have like a, a safety plan to be able to relax, calm your nerves, maybe roll onto your back, swim breaststroke for a little while know what the uh, the safety options are available in terms of like kayakers, water, safety swimmers, support boats. I definitely work with a lot of adults who have had some of those panic situations. Even earlier today, I was just emailing with a client who hasn't done an open water swim before. We were discussing some of these same tactics, but he's become pretty competent in the pool and wants to try like a 0.8 or one mile swim in, New York, in some of the New York City waterways. And we were having a discussion for whether or not he was comfortable with some of those things. And there's also some groups like out at Brighton Beach and we can get in the Atlantic Ocean and practice a little bit in a calmer situation and then maybe we'll tackle a bigger event. Yeah, it's and where do you swim in New York, by the way? You don't swim in the Hudson, do you? I race in the Hudson. In fact, I was just emailing a bunch of clients. There's a couple of races coming up. There's some really great groups. But yes, I, I've done everything from one mile to 10K in the Hudson. I do at least one race in the Hudson every year. And then, of course, we have the East River and Harlem River and all these things that kind of interconnect. And there's a really great open water community out at Brighton Beach near Coney Island. And we get in the, it's partially protected with some of the land masses that come in, but it's really calm and flat. There's some jetties you can swim in between and some pretty scenic like landmarks with Coney Island Amusement Park and things like that. But it's a great place for open water swimmers to get some experience. How about any scenery underwater, meaning sharks? What do you say about that? I, a lot of people like myself that I would remember, I was talking to you about that I cannot swim yeah. by myself on open water, preferably with somebody. But man, I still have jaws on the back of my head. Yeah. What do you, what suggestions would you have to people <laughs> that are afraid of sharks? I, I don't know. That's uh, That can be a real fear. The mid-Atlantic is pretty murky and cooler and you don't always have great visibility. It's a sandy bottom. It can get churned up. So I'm truthfully, you, you don't have a lot of clear days to see things. Uh, I would say become familiar with the waterway that you're going to get into. Swim with a group, swim with a tow float or something to create some visibility know uh, like where it's safe to swim in terms of boaters and, and boat traffic and other things like that. I don't know, statistically, I feel like shark, the, the dangers of sharks is low, but the media really plays into that and it can instill fear in people. Swim with a group, focus on your stroke. I think your chances of um, getting attacked by a shark are you know, much slimmer than probably driving to the destination of where you're going to swim or doing some other things day to day. Or maybe we just have more frequency so we, we take for granted what those risks are. But shark attacks, in my opinion, I guess, seem to be few and far between. Still such a big fear. I had a coworker. He loved swimming before the sun would rise. 
And this one time he invited me over. We're going to start swimming from First Street all the way to 13th Street, something like that in South Beach. I was hoping that the sun would start coming up because this is where I feel more comfortable. And he said, no, the sun is, it's best when it's dark. Man, I, we got in the water. I sort of got then. I put my face inside the water, started swimming. My heart started racing. I couldn't, man. I couldn't. I froze. And he said, come on. It's just like from here. You see that light over there? And I could barely see the light. That's where we're going. No, man, the hell with this. I yeah. wait for the sun. And this is me after doing 10 Ironmans, 20 years of triathlons. I still cannot get over that bump. But going back to your page, your Instagram page, you have great exercises combining why the exercise with a video of whatever stroke it may be freestyle, breaststroke, butterfly, backstroke, those exercises are spot on. Is there a reason why you started combining that too? Yeah. Part of my background is, is a little bit in education and uh, teaching exercise science to other personal trainers and professionals. And being a coach, you're educating your clients. So you start to work on different tactics and you have an appreciation for how people learn. But one of the ways people learn visually. So when you can connect the dots between what we're doing in the gym from a dry land strike perspective, and then what we're also trying to learn. And they can be a really powerful teaching tool. And what I was running into is I was, I had a pretty good swimming background and pedigree swimming through college. And then I started coaching and I realized that I, like I was a pretty good swimmer, but I wasn't that great at coaching swimming. And I was giving people verbal cues and maybe using jargon and anatomical terms to try to get these outcomes that we were looking for. And it just wasn't connecting. But when we, when you, when someone can feel and see something tactical and visual, those things are, are more powerful and they're able to connect that with themselves and they can feel it. So when you can get them out of the water, maybe pattern a high elbow catch or something that you're trying to teach in the water and then get them back in the water, they're going to be more likely to be able to um, dial in that pattern and ingrain it and, and practice. So I just found I got a warm response from that type of and being able to educate people like globally on a platform like Instagram so they can see what we're talking about. And not just someone who like lifts weights, which there might be a bias against anyway in the endurance world, but it's like, no, I'm lifting weights, I'm swimming at a, at a competitive level and I'm helping people do the same thing. And this is what it looks like. And this is how it could help you. Amen to that, brother. It has been my mission as a strength and conditioning coach all this time to educate my clients as well as people that just want to consult on why strength and conditioning for triathlons, running, swimming, cycling, and you and I speak the same language because before any sport, I feel there has to be a need for strength and conditioning in order for the athlete or client to fix his or her flaws. And it's been my experience in teaching them technique and teaching them how the strength and conditioning and their technique correlate and actually have a better outcome in cycling or running or whatever sport. Injuries are dramatically less than somebody who does not do any strength and conditioning. Yeah, definitely. Anecdotally, any of these activities have repetitive stresses and particularly in the endurance world, there's just so much volume. And even if you're a triathlete and you're varying the modalities or you're a competitive swimmer and you can do all the strokes, there's still some, there's some redundant patterns and there's things that you're doing more than other things. So muscular balance is really important. And if you can take a look at that through a strength and conditioning lens and help people create balance in their body, center their joints, be able to produce force equally on both sides you're definitely going to decrease the risk of some of these injuries. You're not, going to re, you're not going to eliminate them, but you're going to reduce the risk. And also from a volume standpoint, sometimes people are just doing too much volume and the smartest strength program is not going to offset running, I don't know, swimming 100 kilometers a week or running 100 miles per week. Mm -hmm. You're just doing a lot of work and not everybody can tolerate those demands. 
Maybe the strength training piece could be a way for you to get stronger and, and learn to produce power and produce speed and maybe cut back on some of the kilometers or the miles that you're doing so you don't have to do so many and you're not putting so many reps and wear and tear cycles on your body. Oh, you said it. There's a time and a place for volume. They overtrain, burn out, et cetera. I guess it's just keep on educating these type of people. And let me ask you, what would be a cue that you would give somebody who is still trying to get their breathing for instance, open water wise, a triathlete trying to do their first triathlon, but they have trouble getting that rhythm of breathing, let's say every stroke or, or every two strokes. Yeah. Oxygen is one of the limiting factors to be able to perform aerobically. And we take it for granted on the bike and when we run, because you can get air the entire time. Perfect. But also I think we overlook the fact that when you're running and biking, you're not breathing constantly. You're not consciously and laboriously inhaling and exhaling constantly. You That might pick up more as you're working hard. But with swimming, I find that some of the first hurdles to overcome are do people just feel comfortable putting their face in the water? We talked about fears earlier. Sometimes that's a real fear that we have to overcome. So simple things that we actually use with kids as well. Just let's get your face in and blow bubbles. And then along the lines of that, you should be exhaling underwater when you swim so that when you roll to breathe, it's very quick and it's only focused on the end. So sometimes even at a high level, we find sometimes that swimmers are trying to inhale and exhale at the surface through the, at the same time. And it's just inefficient and you don't have that time. So some of that cadence of exhaling underwater, inhaling when you roll, and then also breathing as much as if you're doing anything over a hundred meters, maybe even a hundred meters and on, you should be breathing every other stroke. So you're breathing to the same side. You can alternate what that side is and there's strategies for that, depending on how you want to sight and also just distribute stresses, but you should be breathing as much as possible and getting as much air. And that will also help you relax. So practicing some of these breathing patterns gives you more experience with those rhythms so that you can feel comfortable in a race situation and also learning how to breathe under duress so that you don't panic and freak out when you're working hard and maybe suddenly you feel like you're out of breath. Now, I don't know if you follow CrossFit or not, but I've seen more and more wads being done in the water. Is it too much muscle for them to actually have good technique? What, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I follow it passingly. It interests me. I really admire the competitive spirit and and the volume of work that they're able to do. Yeah, we're seeing them enter more. They're having more swimming events in these games. So we're seeing more of them compete and highlight their swim training. But their bodies have adapted to a very specific type of training. Maybe if we see more swim work in the games, we'll see the bodies change a little bit. It's a lot of anaerobic, like short bursts and stuff. So I think the muscle mass can be an advantage, much like some of the muscle mass we see on some of the best sprinters. But they're not well, they're not going to look like swimmers or endurance athletes. They're, they're adapting to different types of stresses. And I don't think that mass has to be a hindrance. I think a lot of endurance athletes might be weary of putting on mass because it's going to slow them. Obviously, putting on like tens of pounds of muscle mass is, might not be the most advantageous thing to do as an endurance athlete. But a lot of CrossFit athletes, are, they're not doing triathlon. They're doing the CrossFit games. I, I don't know the distances. I, I would imagine it's 400 meters or less of sprints. That's, yeah, I think that's a 10K for you. Yeah. Yeah, they're not that. They're, they're doing the best they can with, with what they have. And they're trying to get good at several things all at once. I do think there's things that they could do to improve their technique and leverage their strengths. And their bodies are adapting to that type of. Yeah, it's a lot. It's like learning so many languages at once and trying to master them at the same time. But it's it's very admirable. I must admit, it's very admirable pushing those limits for a whole weekend and still put swimming in the equation. 
But speaking of which, you're doing long distance swimming across channels. What's a memorable one and what are you working on today? I haven't swum any channels yet, but I work with a lot of swimmers who do. I've had swimmers swim the English Channel, the Catalina Channel, swimmers swimming around Manhattan. I was a sprinter in college. I swam everything from the 50 to the 200 freestyle and other strokes. But I found it fun and engaging and reinvigorating to get into some of the open water events. And also, I don't know, when you make a trip, like even for triathlon, if you're going to make a trip and kind of prepare for something, it's sometimes like more, it feels more worth your while to get in and do something that takes, I don't know, 90 minutes or two hours plus. Hmm. But I've been, I've been having a lot of fun doing 10Ks, but I also will get into open water and like race a mile. It's not particularly my strength, but I am, I am a strong swimmer. I did a lot of 10,000 yard workouts, even as a sprinter through college. There's something special about the volume that I can appreciate. And I can I also appreciate being able to toggle like back and forth. Yeah, I'm getting in and doing some longer events, which aren't necessarily catered to my strengths, but I coach a lot of athletes to do the same thing. So I think it's helpful to be participating in these things and have that experience. And it's a new area of competition that I've been enjoying. Well, since you did the 50s and the, or the short distances, I'm sure that long distance are just going to be a welcome event for you because you have that, there's that aerobic boost of working on that energy system and then transferring it over to an aerobic type of system like that. Right? I have an appreciation for that for sure. I actually really enjoyed training and I liked some of the longer workouts, but I was also strong and had that fast twitch to go fast. And I don't know, it was relative. I was an average college swimmer and had a decent 50, but it wasn't world-class and I probably also could have had an average 500 a mile in college as well, but it wouldn't have been world-class. So I think I'm just a, generally like an average athlete who can do many things and I like different challenges. But most swimmers, most sprinters would, they would faint at the idea of doing 10Ks. Although I do think a lot of former high school and college swimmers are finding like a renewed passion for swimming by getting into the open water. So it's just different. I don't think people would balk at training for an hour. So why would you balk at getting in the water and maybe doing a 5K that might take you an hour if you're a strong swimmer? You'd be a really strong swimmer if you could do it an hour, but something around that range. I've just found, you had asked uh, what my favorite one was so far. I did a 10K in Bermuda, in the Bermuda Sound in 2019. And that was a lot of fun. It was challenging. It was a circumnavigation of the inside of the sound there. And that's something I'd like to get back to. And it's been spotty since the pandemic, but I really enjoyed that swim. Talk about clear water and just seeing some really great stuff. And also feeling safe because there's no sharks in the sound. That's a really great event. It's something I'd like to get back to. Any any plans on doing it from, let's say, Key West to Cuba? Something like for that? For me? For me? <laughs> what uh, what here. people have done that, allegedly? I don't know, but I, I've had some swimmer do the the, uh, the lighthouse swim down at Key West. Also yep. uh, swim around Key West. I'm actually, I run hot and I, I prefer the cooler water. I'm not like an ice swimmer, but I'm not as drawn to some of the southern swims for the water temps, but... I'm not opposed to it either, but I've had a handful of swimmers prepare for some Key West swims and those look fun and exciting and beautiful. So maybe something on the shorter end down south for sure. Let me ask you, can you carry some gels with you when doing these long swim events? Yeah. So it depends on the event. Uh, for It really depends on how it's structured. The Bermuda 10K, they have checkpoints that you swim into. You swim to the shore a little bit. You're still in the water, the Gatorade, water, things like that. And then swimmers, so sometimes there's like feed stations, maybe your coach is there, or maybe they're providing feed. Some swimmers will keep gels in their waistband. I'll kind of budget for the distance of the swim and calculate like my caloric intake and carbohydrates and things like that. For a 10K, that might take two to three hours. I don't know, I might have two or three gels in my waistband and I just kind of pop them out, roll on your back, crush one, and then keep going. And then in some cases for these longer marathon swims, you'll have a kayaker and a support. And they will, you'll have a feeding strategy with your team and your crew and they'll throw you something on a water bottle with a string and you'll consume it. And then they'll drag it back because a lot of 
in a lot of cases in those events, you're not allowed to touch the boat or hold on to anything, but you are going to, really? you're going to eat every 30 to 60 minutes in a, ver- a variety of different liquid combinations and semi-solid foods. Did you have to gain some weight for these type of swims? Because you look like a very lean, skinny guy to me. You know, like I said, I'm only doing 10Ks and sometimes they're current assisted. So like the longest 10K with bad conditions might take you like three hours. And I'm not doing cold water swims, but I have athletes doing cold water swims for three plus hours. English Channel, could you could be in the water for 20 hours or maybe at least half that. So yes, it's advantageous to put on a little bit of uh, bioprene and gain some body fat. That's not something I'm ready to do yet because I do. There is a level of vanity to this and and just feeling strong and lean and also an approach to wellness and managing your intake, being at a healthy body composition. Not that those swimmers are unhealthy, but it can be helpful to put on a little bit of body fat to stay warmer, particularly if you're going to follow marathon swimming rules in some of these colder bodies where you're only allowed to wear a swimsuit, a cap and goggles. There's a level of preparation required to prepare for cold water swims like that without a, without a wetsuit and gaining some weight might be one of those strategies. What's your nutrition like in preparing for these type of events? Not that I want to start a food controversy here. Yeah, I'm not a nutritionist, but I have a minor in nutrition and I'm a nutritionally certified coach with Precision Nutrition. Yeah, I, would, I don't have a particular bias around nutrition. I'm open to all things. And I think the best diet is the one that's sustainable for you and respecting different people's ethics and approaches to food and the emotional and social components of that. A big, my, a big approach for me is particularly with this strength piece and the dryland component is helping people maintain their muscle mass. When you're doing so much cardio, it can be very catabolic. You're breaking down tissue mm-hmm. and losing muscle mass can slow you down, make you weak, predispose you to injury. So I'm taking a look at protein requirements, whether you're getting those from plant sources, vegan sources, animal products, whatever works for you, but just making sure people are eating nutrient dense foods. They're getting enough calories to support their activity. They're maintaining their muscle mass. They feel good. And they're also they're looking at this from a, a holistic standpoint and a health and wellness standpoint. It's not just all about fitness and doing extreme things to cut weight or eliminate certain food groups or eliminate nutrients. I, I want them to have a, a broad appreciation for health and, and tackle it from that. So I don't lean towards one or the other and I'm going to support whatever they do, but just help them be smart about it to make sure they're getting all their macro and micronutrients. Have you had any clients or have you ever experienced a swimmer's shoulder? Yeah. In fact, my shoulder's a little cranky right now. Yeah. Arm care, shoulder care, and swimming is everything. It's really important. Swimmer's shoulder is this catch-all term, which can be anything. The shoulder's so complex. It's the most mobile joint in the body. So we need to look at it from a multifaceted standpoint and have an appreciation for all the joint actions that the shoulder's capable of and assess that for range of From my perspective as a strength coach, I don't deal with pain. I'm going to refer out for pain, but I can take a look at how the body's supposed to move. And if there's deficits there, I'm going to work, I'm going to use strength and conditioning practices to help restore that. And there's a balance and a position and like a centered place for the shoulder. And we can help swimmers and, and endurance athletes be smart about. It. And when the shoulders get cranky, refer out to pain, have some good pain professionals in your, that have an appreciation for movement, have mm-hmm. a good group of people in your network that you can collaborate with to keep these athletes in the game, but also be smart about it so that they can be swimming the lifelong sport. So it's not just crushing triathlon in your 30s and 40s. Uh, Hopefully you're swimming for the rest of your life in combination with strike training and all the other things that you want to do. Mm -hmm. And if you take care of your joints, they'll last a long time, but you shouldn't be training in pain and and having a a short-term approach to your training for you really want to take the look at the long game. Do you guys use wetsuits a lot in New York or no? I do most of my training in the pool. 
and seasonally I'm swimming in the open water. In mm-hmm. fact, we, we you and I were just talking about the heat waves coming to New York this weekend, and already I'm I'm going at the bit to get back in the water. I don't do a lot of wetsuit training. I lean towards like marathon swimming rules. So I have a decent tolerance for cold water. Like I'm, I'll get in water in the low 60s. I guess it really depends on the temperature and how long we're going to be. In. But there's a group of people out at Brighton Beach that swim year round and they're just decreasing the amount of time that they're in the water as it gets cool. I guess the ocean kind of caps out around like low 40s. Mm-hmm. And there's people who get in there every day and they're not swimming 15, 20 minutes. And as the temperature fluctuates, they're able to increase their time and you can adapt to it if it's safe and you follow some of the approaches. That's becoming like an increasingly popular pastime. I'm generally swimming in the open water a lot in the spring, summer and fall, but I'll push it in the fall and the ocean stays pretty warm for a while. And I don't mind as the air cools, I'll still hop in. Yeah, having a proper wetsuit that fits you properly is imperative because if you have a shoulder mobility issue and you have a wetsuit that doesn't fit you accordingly, chances are that you're going to be restricted on a lot of shoulder mobility issues. Yeah, I might take trying on several different ones. They're all going to fit a little differently. It's not, I do consult people on getting them. Like they're more buoyant. So if when you're allowed to wear one, you're likely going to be fast. I find them so hindering actually that I, I feel like I'm slower. I'm still a little faster and there's different techniques to swim. When you have a wetsuit on, you might use more of a straight arm. You need even more hip and thoracic rotation to make sure that you can really open up and, and use your shoulders. Maybe you go with a sleeveless. So wetsuit technology is really improving. The arm mobility is improving and you don't need as much neoprene mass in your arms um, to keep them warm. So we'll, you find that the bodies are a little thicker. There's more freedom in the arms. Maybe you go with a sleeveless. Yeah, there's smart strategies. When you're allowed to wear one, it's an advantage. So get some practice. Find one that works for you. And also address your limitations. If you're limited without a wetsuit on, you're going to be even more limited with one on, to your point. So those are things worth considering and just getting some practice and finding the best suit for you. Let me ask one final question. I don't want to take up too much of your time then, but you're a busy guy. Now that summer's going to come around, people are just going to start going to the beach more often. What is your suggestion if somebody per se gets in a bad tide and pulls them in behind the, the waves? What's your suggestion so they won't panic? It's helpful to try to stay calm in those situations, but the more you can familiarize yourselves with the body of water you get again, a lot of the lifeguard protected beaches are going to have signs and, and information on rip currents and conditions, wind patterns. They have a flag system that can warn people of the conditions. Swimming with in front of a lifeguard and within the lifeguard lifeguards field. You know, in New York City, they're very specific about swimming in certain areas and, and also just the safety in general. So familiarize yourselves with safety protocols, swim with a group, ease into things if you don't have a lot of experience swimming in the water with rip currents generally. I'm not an expert in those areas, but they tend to pull you straight out. So when you swim parallel to shore, either left or right of those currents, generally you can get out of them eventually. And then you can make your way back. If you're comfortable swimming with the waves, that can be a strategy to help assist you back into the water as well. Call for help. Be within eyesight of people that you're swimming with, the lifeguard again, et cetera. These things can all really help. You're very buoyant in the ocean. Safety positions rolling on the back, eyes up towards the sky, eyes and chest up, and you, you might be able to float a little bit until someone can help. But yeah, if you don't have experience in the open water, ease into it, swim with people who do, ask questions, read up on the safety precautions and things like that. Dan, you are the man. Can you give us your information and where we can find more, like your webpage, uh, maybe your link tree, or do you have everything attached to your Instagram? Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram and it's a really great place to find me, but at Dan Daly, my last name is D-A-L-Y. I have a website and my brand is Train Daily. So train D-A-L-Y.com. Got some information on there as well. And 
Happy to be a resource for all the listeners out there. I work with a lot of triathletes, masters, open water swimmers, engage with the content, message me. I'd love to hear from people. I'm happy to answer questions. I'm happy to help. So I just want to highlight the sport of swimming, help people be smart about strength and conditioning and continue to promote the sport. Dan, keep up the good work, brother. It's quite amazing what you got going. I appreciate you for your time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and motivated you to keep reaching for new heights. I am always trying to improve myself so I can better serve you at the highest level and deliver priceless information you can put to use immediately after listening to the show. You can always download the show notes and useful links from this episode. Also, make sure you share this with your friends and subscribe anywhere you listen to this podcast. I really love hearing feedback from you, so please share a review on what part of this episode resonated with you the most. And I leave you with this piece of my personal favorite quote from author Marianne Williamson. Our greatest fear is not that we're inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Train smart, guys.